G'day, everybody. Um, today's Bible reading is Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 3, then skipping down to verses 13 to 45. So, big one today. Um, all right. Acts chapter 13. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. All right, skipping down to verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Persia in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Persia, they went on to Pisidian, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He, he made the people prosper, prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised, before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witness to our people." We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, 
I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout, uh, devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Well, this week has been quite a, an exciting week around the globe, especially in America. We've had Joseph Biden uh, inaugurated as President of the United States, and one of the things he had to do was give his inauguration address. Some of you may have uh, listened to that or seen it or seen at least bits and pieces. It triggered me to go searching uh, for what makes a great speech. So I Googled, went to the authority on these matters, Google, and uh, uh, Googled the world's greatest speeches. And I came up with this site, uh, 35 of the world, world's greatest ever speeches. 35 of the world's greatest ever speeches. There were um, classics that you'll be familiar with, like Winston Churchill, who on the 4th of June, 1940, uh, delivered a speech in the House of Commons. And uh, these words are so well known. You know, we will fight them on the beaches, on the landing grounds, in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight them in the hills. We shall never surrender. You know, and uh, that speech galvanized a nation that was facing imminent invasion. Nelson Mandela, 1964, he said this, I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It's an ideal that I hope to live for, but if need be, it's an ideal for which I am prepared to die. And in many ways, that speech lit a fire that continues to burn today, uh, addressing issues of racial inequality and uh, discrimination. What makes a great speech it's interesting, the 35 of the world's greatest speeches ever, Jesus got a mention at number 33 in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I thought, that seems a little low to me. And then I noticed that Ronald Reagan had three mentions prior to that. So, uh, you know, I suspect it might have been an American author, but just possibly, you know, and uh, there you go. But what makes a great speech? What is it? See, I think that this speech, this sermon that Paul gives in Acts 13, should have been in that list. And of course, it doesn't appear. Yeah. Now, you might say, well, you're a, that's because you're a pastor. You're meant to think things like that. You know? And uh, whereas when I was listening to it, I thought, oh, you know, like how many, how many of you found that a riveting speech? You know? uh, I mean, it is primarily addressed to Jews meeting in the synagogue with others listening in. But I want to suggest to you, if you're thinking not just about the rhetorical flourish, it's hard to gauge that when it's only written down. But even if you're an atheist, 
or a secular agnostic, uh, you really should think this is one of the most significant speeches in the history of our world. Any genuine historian would have this in their list of greatest speeches ever. Now, let me explain why. See, Paul here is giving a speech that totally altered the trajectory of the gospel, the Christian message going into all the world. That's what's happening here in Acts 13. It's a pivotal point in what God is doing. And Paul here in Acts 13 is declaring that this message about Jesus is a message for all people everywhere. Up until this point in time, the message about Christianity had been primarily on that sort of um, eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean, right? Primarily and primarily delivered to Jews. But here, it spreads from this point like wildfire. See, how, how significant is this speech even measured today? Well, if you look around the globe, there are around 2.5 billion Christians, right? roughly 30% of the world's population. And those people can essentially trace their origins back to this one speech. It is quite an extraordinary thing in terms of the impact of it. But of course, our concern as we turn to this sermon, this speech, runs much deeper than just the historical impact of this word on our world. This sermon, it's uh, been deliberately recorded. My guess is that Paul the Apostle probably preached thousands of sermons. And here in Acts, we have primarily three of his talks that are recorded for us. One uh, directed mainly to Jews, the next one mainly to Gentiles, and then a further one in Acts. You'll come to those. But why have these three, and why has this one been selected for us by God so that we can hear it? Well, that's what we're gonna to explore today. Uh, we're gonna look at the context uh, in which this sermon is spoken, and the content of what Paul says, and then I wanna think through its implications for us here in 21st century Orgate, okay? That's, that's where we're heading. So here's the context, uh, the setting for the sermon. Acts 13 verse two, that was really helpfully uh, read for us, Barnabas and Saul, they're set apart for the work that God has called them to do. Uh, the church in Antioch, they're meeting together, and uh, actually we can throw up that map now, that'd be great. Uh, the Antioch we're talking about is the one just on the, on the right-hand side of the screen, up the top of the, right on the edge of the, that's the Antioch we're referring to. So the church is meeting there, and we read in verse two, the Holy Spirit said, uh, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, often Christians get caught up in a debate about how the Holy Spirit spoke uh, at this point. Can I say, I think that's missing the point. Uh, if the point had been to work out how the Holy Spirit spoke, I'm sure God would have told us how he spoke. Uh, that is, what we have is the content here, and what we have is God's call or God's mission, uh, God actually driving forward what's about to happen. That's what's happening. Uh, and it just reinforces everything that we've actually been reading in Acts so far, uh, the fact that God is taking this next step in mission. Back in Acts chapter nine, uh, this same Paul or Saul, he is converted on the road to Damascus, uh, becomes a Christian at that point. 
In Acts chapter 9, we're told that Paul is trying, people are trying to kill him uh, because he's preaching about Jesus. And because of that, his mates send him from Jerusalem up to Tarsus. You see Tarsus just up the top of the Mediterranean, right-hand side there. Um, that's where Paul was from. They sent him home. They think it'll be safe from there. And for the next decade or so, Paul engages in Christian ministry around that location. We don't have lots of the details, uh, although you can pick up hints of it as you go further through Acts of the Apostles. Ten years passes by, and in Acts 11, verse 25, Barnabas goes to Tarsus from Antioch and says to Paul, hey, you ought to come over to, you probably didn't say hey, but you ought to come over to you know, Antioch and help me with the work that God is doing in this town. And so Paul goes back with Barnabas to Antioch. Now at this point, let me clarify, there are two Antiochs that are spoken of in this chapter and it can be a bit confusing. It's a bit like um, in Australia, if you go to almost any capital city in Australia, that normally has a suburb called Brighton, okay? Uh, Melbourne's got a Brighton, Adelaide's got a Brighton, most, most cities do, and there's even a Brighton in the UK somewhere, apparently, you know, like a, like a common sort of name. What we have are two Antiochs. We've got the Antioch we've already referred to, just a, in that Syrian sort of region. Then if you follow the lines going around the map, see the Antioch, Antioch just up in the middle uh, of the page at the top there? That's what's referred to as Pisidian Antioch, like Melbourne, Brighton, Pisidian Antioch, to show you that there's a difference between the two. Okay, that comes up a bit later in this chapter in verse 13. Now, why focus on geography and timelines? Uh, you probably didn't come to get a history lesson this morning. Uh, the reason I wanted to do that is just to stress the fact that the God of the Bible is not just an idea or a philosophy. Many of the world's religions are ideas about who God is. Uh, friends, the God we worship and serve is the God who has taken control of history, the God who speaks into history, the God who in real places, in real times, we're talking about mid-40s AD, uh, lays his hand on two men in particular to go and take his word about Jesus, a real man sent by God into this world to die and rise again from the dead. These are things that actually happened. And I think that we need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that because I find myself getting in conversations with people and they talk to me as if uh, Jesus is sort of a bit of an up for grabs idea. Not an up for grabs idea, real history, real places, real time, real events, real action by God achieving his purposes, okay? I just wanted to underline that as we get going. So why is this sermon, why is this speech so significant? Uh, let's look at that together. It's a little weird, isn't it, today, what we're doing? Um, we're having a sermon on a sermon, uh, you know, but that's sort of the nature of what is going on. But where does it fit in God's plans? Now, remember with me, uh, the the scribe of Acts is the same person who also authored Luke's gospel. Right? It's a two-volume set. Back in Luke chapter 24, uh, we capture some of Jesus' last words in verses 46 and 47. 
And these are indicative of where God is going with his plans. This is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Let me go through to Acts chapter one and verse eight. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and says to them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He underscores what he said in Luke's gospel. We get to Acts chapter nine, Paul is converted. And then there's a message given to Ananias uh, to speak to Paul as Ananias goes to visit him. He says in verse 15, this man, that is Paul, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, their kings, and before the people of Israel. And yet the message, Paul, Luke 24, Acts 1, Acts 9, Paul's converted, and here's the message. You are the guy I'm going to use significantly to take the message about Jesus to all the world, all the nations. This is what God is doing. You see, here in Acts 13, we have this, this beachhead moment, and this sermon records the fact that Paul stands up and says, this is the message of God for the whole world. He announces that, even though it's still a predominantly Jewish group that he speaks to. And what Paul does is he provides this wide-angle lens to show what God has been doing throughout history leading to this moment. This is no flash in the pan. This is the persistent purpose of God. He's speaking to Jews. It's in a synagogue in Antioch, the one on the right-hand side. Um, but sorry, not the one on the right-hand side, the one in the middle, the city in Antioch. And Gentiles are there, people from the nations are there as well. Verse 16, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God. And then you get, I won't go through all the details, but let me just block it for you so you get an idea of what, what's being said. Verses 17 to 22, we get an overview of the Old Testament from Genesis to 1 Samuel. So Abraham to the appointment of King David. Then from verses 23 to 25, we go from King David to King Jesus. And then from verses 26 to 37, we have the importance of Jesus in God's plan. So verse 26, brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, people from the nations, it's to us that this message, message of salvation has been sent. He does his Bible overview in just you know, 300 odd words, summarizes the purposes of God. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 2 in Acts 13, 33. Jesus, he's the world's savior from King David's line, the one who was promised, this is him, right? This is the one. Isaiah 55, it's picked up in verse 34. Jesus is the one who brings salvation to people. And then he quotes Psalm 16 in verse 35. Jesus, he was raised from the dead, Unlike King David, whose body is still rotting in the grave, right? Unlike that king, King Jesus has been raised from the dead. He will never die. He will never rot. He is the universal king or ruler for all time that God has appointed. See, the thrust of where it's going. This is no flash in the pan. God's plan for the salvation of the world. It's longstanding and it finds its focus in Jesus. Here is the sermon, 
that he delivers. Now, for just a few moments, what I want to do is uh, capture that and talk about the implications of what Paul the Apostle speaks here for us 2,000 years later. Why is it important? The first is, just to underscore yet again, God is ruling over all history. That is what God is doing. Aussies, like I think most Westerners, we're really myopic. Uh, We tend to think in very short time frame, right? Long-range planning for an Australian is what am I going to have for tea tonight? Do you know? It's that sort of, we tend to be very immediate, and that is the nature of a Western culture, uh, that we operate that way. What's happening to me, my family? And let me say, I think it can shape our worldview as Christians. Just when we live in a, a culture like that, it just creeps in in different ways, and even into our local church. It's easy for us to think about who we are, a church here at Allgate in the 20, you know, first century, meeting on the Sunday, the 24th of January, heading into Australia Day. You know, like, it's easy for us just to think in those sort of limited frame ways. But that perspective is really removed uh, from the reality that we confront here. See, we here at Allgate this Sunday we're the beneficiaries of this sermon spoken in Acts 13 in AD 45 or thereabouts in Pisidian Antioch. But we, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because Paul preached this sermon in Antioch and then went on to keep preaching that same gospel to the nations. Because the nations are just the scattered peoples on the face of the planet. You know, and you can't get more scattered than us. I mean, we're at the end of the earth. And that is the point. The gospel has even come to us. That's who we are. And it's not just this Acts 13 AD 45 sermon, because that was the plan of God for thousands of years leading into that point and for thousands of years leading out of that point. Do you understand? That's where we sit as people. And the point being made is the fact that this is something that God is doing. Right? God's kingdom is not all about us, it's about him and us serving him. And you get that all the way through this sermon. Uh, the focus is on God, not the speaker of the talk. It's interesting those uh, you know, greatest speeches ever, they all focus on individuals and how good they were as orators. But this sermon doesn't focus on Paul, it focuses on God. Acts 13 verse 2. God, the Holy Spirit, sends out Paul and Barnabas. Acts 13, verse 17. It's the God of the people of Israel who chose our fathers. Acts 13, verse 19. God overthrew the enemies of God's people. Acts 13, verse 20. God gave them judges. Verse 22. God made David king. Verse 23. God brought to Israel the saviour Jesus. Verse 30, God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 32, all this fulfilled what God had promised in the Old Testament. It's sort of, you know, the sermon for dummies. You know, the uh, God, 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 God. This is where the focus is. God controls history. God's plan has always been that the good news about Jesus would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. That includes us. If you believe, if you count yourself a follower of Jesus today, 
then thanks be to God who's gone to extraordinary lengths over thousands of years so you can. That's who you are. That's where you sit in the purposes of God. Second thing I just want to underline is that the world's enduring need is met in Jesus. Uh, my guess is if you did a census of your friends or your neighbourhood, ask them what's the world's biggest problem right now, they'd almost certainly say the coronavirus and you know, coming up with the virus that's going to deal with that. And of course, I don't want to minimise the significance of that pandemic or its implications or the solutions to it. But of course, it's not the biggest problem facing our world today. You see, this sermon takes us to the enduring problem, the biggest problem. Verse 38, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What every person in our world desperately needs is the forgiveness of sins. There is not one person on the face of the planet who doesn't need forgiveness of sins. Every person you know, whether they be family or neighbour or colleague or whoever, they all need forgiveness of sins. And verse 39, we're told through him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is justified. It's only Jesus that provides for the forgiveness of sins and making us right with God. Now, can I say, this message, it will get you into a lot of trouble. And you see that as you go through this chapter. It got Paul in trouble. Verse 45, Paul and his mates, they're abused. In verse 50, we're told they're persecuted. And then again in verse 50, they're kicked out of town because they speak this sermon. It gets missionaries in trouble and it'll get us in trouble too. Uh, yesterday, Sue and I were reading in the, the paper uh, about Margaret Court, you know, Australia's best female, the world's best female tennis player ever, who apparently is going to be awarded the highest honour in the Australia Day honours list tomorrow. But the point of the article was there are a number of political figures in Australia who'd piled in to strongly criticise Margaret Court, not for her tennis, uh, but because she is a pastor and a preacher of the gospel. And uh, they disagree with her views on same-sex marriage, and therefore they were saying she should not receive this Australia Day honour. And they were scathing in her criticism of her, using really pejorative language. But can I just say, the, while the debate, the example was same-sex marriage, the key issue going on in that debate really, the bottom line, is that Margaret Court preaches that everyone needs to repent and be forgiven for their sins. Now understand really clearly that is the issue at stake in the debate. It really annoys people to hear that message. People think it's arrogant and dogmatic. Are you saying only Jesus can provide forgiveness of sins? What about those who believe in other religions, you know, Buddhists or Muslims or 
um, Hindus or any number of other religions in the world, but a bit your average agnostic Australian who tries to live a good life but hasn't got the foggiest what they believe, you know? Uh, we're just sort of flying, going with the flow, you know? Are you saying they're all, you know, they all need to repent and be forgiven and have a right relationship with God, that it's all tied up with Jesus? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and actually, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And do you understand the logic of how this sermon is preached? You can only have a relationship with God if you're forgiven. It's only Jesus who's been raised from the dead and rules the world. It's only Jesus who died for our sin. It's only Jesus that can provide forgiveness. It's only Jesus who can justifies us, justify us with God. Our religion can't do it. That's the point being made in this chapter. If the law of Moses, living a good life, could do it, you'd be fine, but it doesn't. Only Jesus can actually do it. Now, can I say in intolerant, relativistic Australia, uh, this is not a very politically correct message. Now, I do understand that. I get the way it upsets people. But here's the thing. It's either true or it's not. And if it is true, then you can't dodge it. It just is the reality. We all need Jesus to be made right with God and to experience freedom from sin and from guilt. Now, can I say today, if that's not you, if you haven't taken that step, this is the issue you need to resolve. Uh, yeah, 2021, you could do lots of different things. But if you haven't got forgiveness and if you're not right with God through Jesus, there is no other issue that ranks above that one. That is the reality. But friends, the other thing you learn from this passage that becomes so clear is that who we are in God's economy is so obvious some of us got to go to the CMS conference last weekend and hear from missionaries and hear about what God is doing throughout the world. Uh, I loved hearing from Wim Prince, uh, who I think is a missionary attached to this congregation. Wim was talking about the work in Cambodia and they read out a letter from a person he'd been talking with about Jesus, a Buddhist, who'd become a Christian and the impact on this man and his family and the way he wanted to get skilled up to be able to be... Uh, communicate about Jesus more effectively. It was wonderfully encouraging. And the missionaries were all speaking about the, uh, just the difficulties they'd been enduring and especially the complications with that during a COVID period. But all of them spoke with great confidence because they had clarity about Jesus and the importance of people around the nations hearing about him, the sovereignty of God ruling over all of his world and superintending the work of the gospel and therefore a confidence to be in that space at this time, knowing those truths. Uh, it was just wonderfully powerful. And yet it's the same for us. Um, everyone around us is so spiritually needy. And as we speak about Jesus, some will be 
wonderfully glad, like verse 48, the Gentiles, they're pretty excited. Uh, some, as you're open about being Christian, will be really angry, just like the Jews in verse 49. Uh, we expect that. Paul quotes from Habakkuk as he goes through. And he says, look, God said, some of you give me a hard time just like you're doing. So I'm not surprised. And some of you will hear it and rejoice. It's the same today. The gospel will produce those sort of responses, which is why at the end of the day, Paul just brushes the dust off his feet and off they go and speak it somewhere else. He's just settled that he's in that space and that will continue to be in that space. But friends, it does mean we have great joy and great confidence as we speak, uh, as we plant churches, and I know this, this church here is talking about doing that into the future, to take the gospel to other people. As you step into uh, uncomfortable spaces and talk about the Lord Jesus, God has already gone before you. God has superintended this mission until the end of the age. And we are his instruments. And we know God has an unstoppable gospel. And he himself overrules over in all that we do. And these, these messages, they just underlie everything about who we are and his plans and purposes. So let me pray for us. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are superintending uh, the good news about Jesus uh, for the whole world. Uh, Father, we thank you for your great kindness and mercy to us in your son. And Father, we pray that uh, we'll be those who see what you're doing for all eternity, where we fit into that, the essential nature of the gospel about Jesus going to all people, and that you'll give us a courage that stands in the face of opposition as well as joyful acceptance, knowing that both in the economy of what you're doing our realities as we press forward. Help us not to be surprised or feel like we've done something wrong when people react to the gospel message and help us to be very thankful to you in all circumstances as we have the privilege of speaking about the Lord Jesus to others. Uh, we pray these things in his name. Amen.